A smart person learns from their mistakes. A wise person learns from others' mistakes. Welcome to the My Mistakes Podcast. We cover the lessons learned from the mistakes we've made in business so you won't do the same. I'm Chris Chanchuli. Today's guest is Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Find out how he became the head writer to the king of all media, Howard Stern. Also, learn some of the things that Jackie did outside of the box that no one else was doing at the time, on the show and on the road. This episode is being brought to you by Don Pablo Coffee. Specialty grade beans roasted in small batches. It's a better cup of coffee. Get yours at Amazon or at DonPabloCoffee.com. We are up and running for the My Mistakes podcast, and today was able to get on a guest that I'm, again, I sound like someone who's just going back in time to my old history of things, legends, and people that entertain me, and this is someone well, do me a favor. Do everything knows. you possibly can to make me feel old. That's a nice way. <laughs> that's a nice opening. Everything you can do. To, and now here's somebody that we dusted off from the days of yesteryear and the Lone Ranger. You're a whore. <laughs> Here we have Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Thank you, Jackie, for hey, being on. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Anybody that mentions, mentions Neil Drake, Doug Goodstein, or Tim Sabian, I would normally destroy my iPad and leave town. But <laughs> I made an exception for you because you seem like a nice guy and you're one of those few people I have more hair than. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. It's already... I oh, guess that doesn't work on an audio podcast, but I don't care. <laughs> You'll be amazed at what I don't care about. <laughs> so I did some looking on Wikipedia, and I've heard about you, or actually read one of your books. Can you tell everyone, what was your early life like? What was your childhood? What were your parents like? Start us off there. I'll tell you. It's a long story, but it's so funny because I just read Mary Trump's book, and she was talking about how her brother has a black hole that just cannot be filled with any kind of positive reinforcement, which is every comedian and every entertainer, which is so, just the way she put it was very funny. I grew up on Long Island on the North Shore of Nassau County in a very, very crazily wealthy area. You know, all mansions and Theodore Roosevelt and the Vanderbilts and everything. But my family, my grandfather, not my great, great, but literally my grandfather, was a blacksmith, and his blacksmith barn was on the corner of our property. I grew up in the house my father was born in that my grandfather built, and our family was the Waltons until 1960 or so, and then the old man was drinking more and more, and it got crazier and crazier, and it became an insane asylum, and my house was right in the middle of town, so it was the melting pot. So me... And my brother, who was two years younger, and my sister, who was six years younger, and my second brother, who was 11 years younger, each set of our friends came through that house and never stopped coming through that house. And zillions of people came and went, and they still talk about my house. And that was where I started. But the way I try to explain myself, I grew up in a home that was built by my grandfather. And by the time I was born, my mother and father lived downstairs, and my aunt and my uncle, who was my father's brother, who married my mother's sister, were upstairs. So I had my mother, my father, my father's brother, and my mother's sister upstairs. So for the first two years of my life, I had four doting parents. They must have known every move I made, every poop I took, every word I said I was the first kid. And two years later, my mother had another kid. My aunt and uncle moved out because she had a kid. And I went from, and my old man, of course, was drinking. So I went from four parents to no parents. And all of a sudden, for the last 70 years, I've been going, where the hell did everybody go? And make a noise to try and get some attention back. I, I don't know if that holds any water, but who cares? Who's keeping score? You know, and early, early on, you can't know what's going on in your life until you meet people and get to compare it. Like, I never thought there was anything weird about my family until I started telling people the things my mother did, my father did. My mother took me to a horror movie when I was four years old, 
And she told me dirty jokes and not dirty, dirty jokes, but, you know, it, it was a dark, you know, dark humor. She was so funny and so brilliant. But I didn't know that everybody's parents weren't like that till I got older, you know, so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Were they taking that, care of you financially at an early age or did they make you go get a job? My father did okay. We lived in a house we owned that they owned and my father got a job. My great uncle, my father's uncle was a huge politician. He was actually Eisenhower's campaign manager in 52 and 56. So everybody in the family had uh, Republican connected jobs. So my father did okay. And as he did better and better, we didn't have like money. Like I remember begging for money to go to dance class with the other kids, which was like 10 bucks, but we never missed a meal or anything. And in ninth grade, I stumbled into a great job as the head busboy at Piping Rock Club, which just happened to be the most exclusive country club in the world that, you know, that it was like a, Blue blood, forget about it. So I always had a money. It was a small paying job, but it didn't take much money. If you had 20, 40, 60 bucks, and then in high school started playing in bands. So I always had a little bit of money, not very much, but you didn't realize you didn't have much, you know, until you got to college at Michigan State and, and all your friends were in fraternities or they were from Detroit and their parents worked for General Motors and they had a fistful of cash and you're like, Oh, maybe I maybe I didn't do as well as I thought, you know. You said that you were at not just a country club, but you mentioned about bands. What got you into music and playing at what age was that? There was a kid that's still my best friend. Uh, we were in bands on and off our entire lives. Uh, Chris Bates, he lives in Florida now. I must have seen him with a guitar or something. What happened was he went to Sunday school and some girl in his Sunday school class said to him, hey, you know who's really cool? Ricky Nelson. He plays the guitar. So my friend went out and bought a guitar and got guitar lessons. And the girl never came back to Sunday school. He never saw her again after that day. And then he had been taking guitar lessons. And at some point, I must have seen him with a guitar. And in my mind, like every other goddamn guy that ever played the guitar, like, wow, what a great way to meet chicks and have fun, you know. So I said, hey, you know how to play the guitar? He said, yeah, I'll teach you four chords. We can have a band, you know, like C, A minor, F, G, a regular progression of every rock and roll song. And so he said, sure. And that was in the summer of eighth grade. So in ninth grade, we formed the Sonics and we played all through high school and everybody loved us. And we had fun. And I told jokes in between songs, which made the guys in the band and the people in the audience crazy. And I don't mean in a good way. They, they were like, what's wrong with this idiot? <laughs> but we had so much fun. And then I went away to Michigan State and started a band called the Off Hour Rockers. and. Played all through college, you know, the first couple of years. Then we started, we, that band broke up and we created the Pillowcase. And I, I, it took me five years to graduate, but I stayed in East Lansing, Michigan for seven years because I was drinking and smoking pot and getting laid and having a great time and playing in a band and didn't want to grow up. I didn't realize at the time that I was, that I was never going to grow up, but I probably thought eventually I would, but I was putting it off. I eventually realized that we were going nowhere. I'll tell you a funny story. Like we were so bad, you know, but, but I was a wild man. I told jokes in between songs and the band was like, shut up. You know, you know, at one point we were playing a fraternity party and nobody was dancing. I put down my guitar and I went out on the dance floor and did my gymnastics floor exercise routine from high school. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of, I was a nut, right? But we were playing in all these college fraternity parties and the fraternities loved us, even though, because we were just wild as hell. And we weren't going anywhere. And at one party, we were on break. And I heard one of the fraternity guys say to the drummer in my band, you guys are so great, man. You're unbelievable. And the drummer in my band literally said, yeah, someday we hope to tour Ohio. <laughs> and I said to myself, what you do is say someday we're going to tour Pluto. And if we get stuck touring Ohio, fine. But if that's his, if that's his end game, I am so out of here, you know, so I escaped and went to Denver. And after six months working construction, I realized that was not for me, came home to New York. And we started a band and we, we traveled the entire 70s in a 1955 bright yellow Cadillac hearse. And we were the second version of the Off Hour Rockers. We played original songs and told jokes and did routines and everybody loved us. 
and you know, when you're old, it's very, it's hard for people to, you know, like, I, like kids nowadays can't even conceive of not having a cell phone. There was no video in the 70s. There was no such thing as video. And that band, our band was so fun. I played harmonica. I played banjo. I played guitar. I sat down. I worked the lights with my right foot. I had a, I had a tambourine on my left foot to make, you know, to give us rhythm. And we broke chops, and then we added a piano player. There is no video of that band. We broke up in 1978, and two years later, boom, VHS players, everybody had a video camera, everybody has video. We're lucky we got still shots of that band, you know. But it was crazy, it was crazy. And I always told jokes, and I realized that we were going nowhere, so I started playing by myself, playing guitar, telling jokes you know, doing singles, even though the band was still playing. And I got a job in a recording studio and I bumped into a couple of comedians and the comedians started coming to my gigs because there was no place to do comedy on Long Island. So like Richie Minervini and Eddie Murphy and Bob Nelson, Rob Bartlett, these guys would come and do five or 10 minutes on my, on my stage in these little bars because there was no place else to do it. And then me and Richie started a show at a restaurant named Cinnamon on, in Huntington on Long Island. And I mean, you're all about entrepreneurs and everything. Here we're starting a show, a comedy show, which nobody has ever heard of, a comedy show. You know, comedians stand on stage telling jokes or doing routines that didn't exist. And we're like, we got no money. How are we going to let people know? And I got the bright idea. You know what? I'll just get a phone line. And tell my stupid jokes. And in between the jokes, I'll tell people where we're working. And that was 516-922-WINE, which was my X-rated joke line that took me to the moon and is still operating. If you dial 516-922-9463, hey, this is Jackie. Thanks for using your finger. In the early 80s, Rick Dees had it on his national show. And he used to tell his audience that 516-922-9463 was Tom Selleck's home phone number. <laughs> and the thing went, it was 10 lines in my mother's attic. I mean, every time I start talking, people think I'm making it up as I go along. I went from one line to two lines to four lines to six lines to 10 lines, thousands and thousands of calls a day from all over. And nobody even knew how they knew about it. What year is it that you 1979. For years, after Nancy, who became my wife, came to work with me, we had 10 phone mate answering machines that were one minute each. And it got to the point where I would make the master tape and Nancy would make dubs, 10 dubs. And she changed the jokes on that machine every day, seven days a week for six or seven years. If you called up, you heard different jokes every day. And the stories I still hear from guys, the guys would call up and they'd come in and they'd see the secretary and they'd have a joke for the secretary. And the secretaries would think the guys were so cool. And then one day the guy would walk in and go to tell a joke and the chief she finished the joke. I heard about that stupid joke line. <laughs> were you writing these jokes or were you just no, telling I other don't, jokes? I do not write jokes. I do not write jokes. All these jokes are jokes that have been around. When I'm a student of this stuff. And you find out that jokes have been around since forever. But I'm very funny. I got the greatest social distancing joke. I said, I figured out social distancing. I just walk around with my dick out and anybody can see it. It's too close. <laughs> So I, I'm, a, I'm actually a little bit funny, but these jokes have been around forever and ever. And people, the stories about 9221 go on and on. And people think I got rich. It has cost me money for 40 <laughs> years, but it got me the job running governors. It got me so much exposure. Rick Dees heard about it and started putting it on his national show. You know, so it, it's, it's such a level of infamy that it's ridiculous. And people, Used to think it was a joke, not to make a bad joke, but then they dial it. Though Jesus, it's it's real, you know. I still have friends to this day, and they will give out that number to people. I was fooled by that not too long ago. My friend Todd did it to me. It's a with, great gag. It's you know it, when I started on the Stern Show in 1983, and he promoted the the number, 
And the second week he promoted the number because after I did the first time with Howard and Robin and Fred, I was on the show with them randomly because I had sent them my comedy records. I was such a hustler. You wouldn't believe the amount of you wouldn't believe what I did to try and get somewhere. I was scraping for decades and they got my records and they called me up and I sat in. And after the day of sitting in, Howard said, boy, you're a lot of fun. Come back next week. And I came back the next week and they promoted Governor's Comedy Shop where I was the host and the booker. And they promoted 516-922-WINE. And I mean, this is a 50,000 watt station in, in Manhattan and it went nuts. And then after the second week, Howard called me and said, I got some bad news for you, man. I'm like, well, I guess that's the end of my radio exposure. You know, I didn't know anything about radio. I had no intention of ever doing radio. It was so random, but I sent my albums to everybody. And I heard about Howard in Washington. The club owner told me, hey, this guy's moving to New York. You should look him up. So blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, and he goes, he says, I can't promote 922 Wine anymore. I thought he was going to say you're off the show. What had happened was that NBC got a lot of, a lot of complaints because 516-922-WINE is dirty jokes. You know, and it's an AM station. The whole world's listened to it. And 12-year-old kids are dialing, hey, hey, to the guy that's walking to a bar, you know. And he said, we can't promote 516-922-WINE anymore. I'm like, is that all? Jeez, so what? You know, just say governors. I don't care. You know, but that was, that was, that was great, great fun. I was, that was the first time it, it, it got in my way at all. You know, I actually had the license plates 922-WINE for a while. But then you start getting a little bit famous. And people steal them or they bang your car. You know, you know, there's a lot of idiots out there. You know that. That's something interesting about you as a comedian. What appealed to me about you and your style, because I've seen you at Governor's in the past, is you don't come across like someone who's writing their own jokes. So I didn't even know that. You come across as the fun guy at a party who is great at telling jokes. And that, I've that never believed... I don't know how you retain or can, I can't remember more than one joke for usually a couple hours. Obviously, this is the first thing everybody asks. And they like, how the hell can you remember all those jokes? To begin with, when I do my act, it's probably 150 jokes. People think it's 2000 because I'm going kind of fast. But the bottom line is, that's all I know. How does a doctor remember what every blood vessel is and what every organ is, you know? That's my field. They say, how do you remember an hour's worth of jokes? I say, all right, I'm in Bayville and I'm driving to Manhattan. How do I remember to drive past every exit? They're along the way. I know the route. And they're along the way. I know these jokes. They're in my act. If I want to get off at an exit and get a piece of pizza, I can go off and tell jokes about that, get back on, go off here, get back on, or else I can go straight. It's you know, it, it's your field. That's all I do, you know, and I've collected these jokes forever. And I know more, I, I, I could bore you for hours and hours with this stuff. And, it, and I'm so fascinated by it. Was it practicing how you would deliver a joke? No, there was no such on? thing as practice. I was in third grade. And my cousin told a, recited a dirty poem in front of me and my friends. And it must have clicked with me. And I've remembered dirty jokes, clean jokes, every joke I've ever heard. I graduated from college as a mechanical engineer. I'm, I'm a bright guy. I'm smart. And, but I really love these jokes. And I just have told them and told them and told them to the point where it's made people crazy. Like if I'm hanging out with some guys and you tell a joke and he tells a joke, I tell a joke. And then you tell a joke. And by the time it gets around to me, I've got five to tell. I've got eight. And I was always the last guy standing at a bar at a party with a group of guys on a camp out. And I knew these jokes so long ago. I mean, I knew these jokes forever and ever. In, in the 70s, I had a band and we told jokes. So of course we take a break. And somebody come up to me at the bar and say, hey, I got a joke for you. And I say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna count down from 10. And by the time I get to zero, if I don't know the answer to the joke, I'll buy you a drink. I never, bought anybody a drink. I knew the jokes. I could see the. if a guy said a cowboy and an Indian across in the desert, two sentences in, I'm like, oh, this is the one about the priest and the nun in Alaska. Yeah, I could see the parallels. It's pretty frightening. And I became a social leper because I always know the joke. And, you know, if a girl tells a joke, you let her tell a joke. But I can't because I can't have some broad going around saying, well, I told that guy a joke. He didn't know. I always know him. So I'm like, lady, 
you know, I'm not a rude guy, but if I know you joke, I'm going to stop you. And I always stop them. And uh, I've been playing Stump the Joke Man for 40 years, and it's so fun. You know, and people get up on stage and try and tell me a joke, and I insult the girls. And, you know, it's a stupid calling, but I have never claimed to write. When I first started doing this, after the band broke up, I said, I'm going to try telling these jokes on stage. The word got to New York City, which was a zillion miles away. Oh, there's some guy in Long Island telling jokes. And people thought, oh, this guy bought a joke book and read a few jokes and goes up on stage and tell them. They didn't realize that organically I had collected these over decades, literally decades. And they, I just knew them cold. And once people came to the city, I mean, came out from the city to work for our shows or anything, and they met me, they're like, well, well that guy's the funniest guy I ever met. You know what I mean? It's like, so that they had the relearn they had to they re reevaluate as someone would tell a joke like you weren't writing these down or cutting out pages and pasting uh, together well, cards. you know i would i would go i would go through stuff sometimes i go through old periodicals or the uh, there was a different stuff you just circle something and grab it it's funny because i still have some of the stuff from years ago and i'll see the joke that i originally read you know because i pare them down cut up cut out all the garbage and, you know, but for the most part, like if somebody told me a joke in a bar, so I didn't, didn't write it down, I would go home and I got, I got millions and millions of loose leaves where I wrote the jokes out. But, you know, I, I never had to sit there and write them as the people would tell me, like they just stuck in my head. And if they didn't stick in my head, sometimes somebody will stump me with a joke. When they stump me with a joke, I said, well, the reason I don't know that is because it's not funny. I would, I, I would no, no reason to make room for that up in my head, you know. It's very odd. When is it time that stands out to you that you were on stage and none of the jokes you were telling were getting laughs and you just felt like you flopped? And what did you do about it? That really doesn't happen because what happens early on, if you work in a club with a couple hundred people and you're killing, and then the next night you work in the club and there's only 10 people, and it can get frustrating because you don't hear 200 people laughing, but that's because they're not there. There are times things just don't work that make you a little crazy, but pretty early on, you realize, listen, you know, I know I actually say, I actually say to people, I know these jokes are funny. I'm testing you. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I was telling a story the other day because things can be weird. I did a show, a private show in Atlantic City for 30 or 40 or maybe even 50 higher ups of Coca-Cola. The actual the guys from Atlanta were in Atlantic City, and this girl got me this gig. It was like four or five round top tables, 10 people each. And after they had dinner, they sent me into the room. No microphone, no stage, no nothing. Go in there. And I walked around for 30 or 40 minutes. Chris, I have no idea what I said, no idea what I did. I, it, it's just like automatic pilot. What do you, they didn't smile. They didn't react. They're a bunch of wasps. They couldn't have been more tight ass. I'm like, I don't think I really insulted anybody, but I probably broke balls a little bit. And I swear to you, I, I, never, get, I never get flustered. I walked out of there and went back to my room and I said, I got to get out of show business. If I can't make a room full of people at least respect, respond a little bit, I'm worthless. I ordered a big dinner and I sat there and ate it. And I was like, I can't believe what a jerk I am. And after I'm eating my dinner, it's about 45 minutes later, the phone rings and the girl who had gotten me the gig, who was at the show, calls up and says, listen, I'm sorry I couldn't call you sooner because they wanted to have dessert and coffee. They love you. They're going to pay you double and they want you to come down and hang out in the bar. And I'm like, now that is proof that nobody knows nothing. I'm telling you, they didn't respond a bit. And that's the only time in my life you never get tipped as a comedian. They pay, I think it was $5,000 and they gave me $10,000. And I was like, what planet? What planet is this? You know. So you mentioned about sending out tapes and Stern called you up. And how did you land in that seat or it morph into an actual job where you were getting a paycheck? When I was working in the band, my band recorded a song called The Pot Song which became very famous in Stern circles because Howard used to make fun of it on the radio. But it was in jukeboxes on Long Island. It was kind of cool. And the guys that recorded the, the song for the band liked me. And I went to work at the recording studio. And from working there, I learned that any moron can have an album. So I borrowed $100 from 15 different people. 
and recorded on a cassette player at that first gig that we made 922 Wine for that was in a restaurant in Huntington and made an album. And then a year later, I made another album. And then a year later, I made another album. And as I made these albums, I mailed them to everybody. If I met you on the street, you said, hey, I hear you're a comedian. Oh, give me your address. I'll send you an album. There was no way anybody will ever know how many albums I sent away. I used to sell them after my gigs. I'm selling albums after the shows in 1979. And the other comedians are making fun of me. Nowadays, you cannot go to a show without people selling stuff there. They're breaking my balls about selling my records. I'm autographing the records and selling them for five bucks a piece. And all of a sudden, one day, somebody goes, wait a minute. We made 40 bucks a piece, and he made an extra 80 bucks selling his stupid records. Maybe he's not that dumb, right? So, but we're selling, I'm sending out the records. Then when I had two records, I sent them to everybody. And when I, by the time I had three records, Nancy was working with me. And if we met somebody, we said all three records, the matching cassettes and the promo and mailed it to you. And I mean, the postage was a lot, the records, the cassettes, all this cost a fortune. And I was making money at governors, but not a lot. I can't tell you how much money and somebody in Washington, D.C. said, all right, this guy, Howard Stern, just got fired down here on the radio. He's going to NBC in New York, you should look them up. I, we sent the same package that we sent to three or 400 other people. Howard Stern, care WNBC AM. Blind, no idea. A couple of months later, Nancy calls me up. She says, hey, that guy Howard Stern just called. He wants you to come on the radio. I went on the, into 30 Rock. I walked in, and I always like saying this because the last day I worked there was the same people. It was Howard, Robin, Fred, and me. And the last day I worked there was Howard, Robin, Fred, and me. And I walked in, and I'd never been in this situation before, but it's four people hanging out. I didn't tell any jokes. I didn't really say much, but I got a great laugh. And I was really enjoying myself. And this is the big time. I'm working in Levittown on Long Island. All of a sudden, I'm in a room with, you know, on the walls, there's Letterman and Carson and, you know, like, holy Christ, you know. And it was so much fun. And they liked me at the end of the day. Howard said, you're really a lot of fun. Why don't you come back next week? I said, okay. And then after a couple of weeks, he says, we really should have something, some kind of piece of business. I said, well, people try and tell me jokes I haven't heard. Became Stump the Comedian. And I used to bring people, like he'd say, why don't you bring in some of your comedy friends? And to this day, there's people that say to me, I can't believe you asked me to go on the Howard Stern show. And I said, no. So I'd say to somebody, hey, you want to come on the Howard Stern show with me on Tuesday at four o'clock? And they're like, what's it pay? Like, what's it pay? It's 50,000 watts in the tri-state area. What's it pay? What, but you can't explain that to somebody if they don't understand the concept of promotion. So I did that and did that for three years. And then Howard Stern got fired. And then he got rehired. And I was back to one day a week, you know, in the afternoons. And then they decided to go to mornings. And he said, listen, we you know, still working for free. I was supposed to get $20 a week for parking. And of course, he never gave it to me, which was, it was ridiculous. You know, I was supposed to get $25 a week. And a few times he had money. So he said, will you take 20? I don't have any fives. It was like, you couldn't even make it up. It was so ridiculous. So he says, I need a price for two days a week. We're going to mornings. So we went to mornings and I was on two days a week. But over the three years, I was slowly but surely writing things and passing them to him. And he's like, he was not too into it at first, but, you know, and then you say something and it's funny and people say, oh, that was funny. It's like, hey, what else you got? And over the course of time, I was passing him more and more stuff. And then after we went to mornings, I went from two, more, two mornings a week to three to four to five very fast because he was funnier the days I was handing him jokes. And it's not that he's not funny, but if you got two minds working instead of one, there's a difference. So all of a sudden, I'm there five days a week, and all of a sudden, now I'm a conduit so Fred can get jokes to him, too. So he's got three senses of humor that are completely different. There's his sense of humor, my sense of humor, Fred's sense of humor, and we went to Pluto from 1986, August of 1986, and then he got syndicated to Philadelphia, and it, it was just a joyride, just a 15-year insane joyride. So you mentioned there about getting jokes to him or passing jokes. Can you explain what that meant and what the process was? Because I think you really innovated 
what's around today with computers, but you had your own version. When we were in the, at WNBC, he was like sitting at the mic. So I would like write down something on like a scrap and kind of put it in front of him on the desk in front of him. And at some point I said, well, this is crazy. So I got an actual stack of eight by 10 paper and a Sharpie so I could write it and put it in front of him. And then when he got fired and when we went to K-Rock, when I got there, he actually was behind the desk, you know, with the, with the easel there. And he had an open loose leaf and one side of the loose leaf he wasn't reading from. So there was the, the side of the loose leaf that was kind of you know, not blank, but there was nothing there. And they actually had a place for me to sit right up to it. So I would sit there, I'd write it on an eight and a half by, you know, 10 piece of paper with a Sharpie and literally flip it over and put it. So, you know, if he's looking at a loose leaf at at this place, Robin was over to the left and my page would be right there. You know, we weren't on TV or anything. And then sometimes Fred would hand me a little scrap. And and at one point I said, Fred, here's a stack of paper and here's a Sharpie. If you write something and you hand it to me and I have to rewrite it, by the time I get it to Howard, the moment's lost. you got to write it nice and big and clear. So all of a sudden we got the two of us going and it just, it just worked like a charm. And we went to mornings and when we changed studios, it got to the point where Robin was across from him and he had a loose leaf on the left and a loose leaf on the right and a, and a hole in the middle where he could see her. And there was, you know, and I was sitting to his left in front of him. And I was literally for years, like writing a note and flipping it over and putting it in front of him. And nobody knew for so long. He's so seamless. You couldn't even tell anybody had written anything. He would change it. He would switch it around. If it was something I wrote about Fred, he'd change it to me. He'd change it to you. There's no, there's no, I can't overemphasize how brilliant the guy is. And I'm not sucking his head. I'm just saying, you know, it couldn't have worked. If he wasn't him and I wasn't me, I mean, I move like lightning. But I tell people, it's like, if Robin and Howard and me were sitting at a table having a conversation, I'm a funny guy. So he says something, she says something. Maybe I think of something funny to say. Only in this situation, instead of me saying it, I'm writing it down, putting it down, and he's saying it which has to happen fast. He's got to digest it fast. And we, we moved like lightning. And people would come in and they'd be kind of flabbergasted by the whole thing. You know, it's really fun. I still have every note I ever wrote that he said. I remember him saying that on a show once. Is that true you take the card or the piece of paper, then write the date and the time and then file it? No, no. What I did was when we went to commercial, I would just take the stack of whatever was there and I would write, like a little six down in the corner. I didn't write the data, but at the end of the day, I'd have a stack of papers and I'd fold a piece of paper over it and write the date. And I don't know why I saved them. There was no real reason or no, no plan, but who knew it was going to let, you know, nobody knew we we're going to last 15 years. We might've lasted six months, you know, and it was so fun. I got so many stories about the whole thing, which was just just crazy. And at one point, I had people autographing the notes, and Grillo was getting them to sign them. And then we got caught, and we got in trouble. And it was, but it was all fun. It was all funny. You know, it was great. And the really funny story is the E Show because we had a show on Channel Nine in Secaucus, Channel Nine Television. It was like a superstation, and we did like four test shows, and they gave us a season. We would go to Channel 9 in Secaucus. We're doing a full-time radio show, four or five hours a day. We, like, he's doing it, but we're there. And on Monday, we got a blank piece of paper. And on Friday night, we have to have an hour television show taped in the can. Okay? That's in addition to the radio show. So it, it, I always compare it to my favorite year. It's a fantastic movie. It was like, you know, it's like the, the pressure and the craziness and and we would book guests. And then by Wednesday, the guests would find out they had been booked on the Howard Stern show. And they're like, I ain't doing that show. And we'd have scrapped. It was, it was just so fun, but so ridiculously crazy that at the end of the first year, the first, first season, we were almost hoping we didn't get renewed. 
It doubled my salary, but it was so crazy. And I, meanwhile, I was working gigs. I was hosting Rascal's Comedy Hour, so I needed a different monologue every week. It was, I would do more in one day than I do now in a year. And it was crazy. And, with the, you know, we're looking to uh, get the second season. And they always made fun of me because they always said I was so lazy and I didn't want to do any work, which was ridiculous. I didn't want to do work that didn't get used. But I worked as hard as anybody. But, you know, he also said I was cheap and angry, you know, and I'm the most fun guy, the most generous guy you'll ever meet. But he knew that was a button that would make me nuts, right? But at some point, I said, what's really funny is they made fun of me on the air for saying this. And it doesn't exist. And Gary says, I don't know. I don't know I that people. I said, Howard, why are we breaking our balls and going to New Jersey? We got all the show we need right here. You're there. Robin's over there. Fred's here. I'm here. Gary and John are in and out. The guests are in and out. We got more than enough show right here. There's no reason to go anywhere else. Oh, we don't want to go to Jersey. Oh, it's too much work. Oh, why do we got to work? Oh, you know, so they made fun of me. And then whether it was a month later, two months, we're on our way to a screening and we're all in the limo. And Howard goes, hey, we're having TV cameras come into the show tomorrow. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, you know how I've always wanted to videotape the radio show. And I was a deer in the headlights. I didn't say, yeah, it was my freaking idea. What do you mean? I, you know, and if I had opened my mouth, but I didn't. <clears throat> what was really funny was that I didn't. I thought it was a ridiculous idea to even suggest it because at the time I'm writing notes and flipping is in a small room and I'm writing a note and flipping it over onto an easel. I'm writing a note and flipping it over. And it was like the magician that, that has the girl in the box putting the swords in. There was no place they could have put a camera that didn't catch me passing those notes. But they put in a lipstick cam and put a bin underneath. So I'm writing my notes and putting it on the lipstick cam. And it's coming up on a computer, a computer screen. It wasn't a computer. It was the Jackie Martling show. It was just my notes in front of him. And that's how the notes got to him. I thought it was an overhead projector. That's what it looked like on TV. No, <clears throat> well, I'd write a joke, and there was a bin down to my left where I put the, put the note in, and there was a camera right above it, a lipstick, a small camera shooting down at it. And when we went to the next studio, it's so funny because he had a video monitor to his left and the video monitor to his right. So if there was a guest standing there off to his right and he was talking to him, he could see my notes. And also when he was talking to somebody sitting on the couch, there was the video monitor where he, and whenever he had a guest, he would put on his sunglasses. And it, it fit his character, right? He's having a guest, so he's Mr. Cool, and he's got on his sunglasses. He had on his sunglasses so he could look over and read my notes. And the person he's interviewing had no idea that his eyes were darting off to the left, which that, that always freaks people out. It's, it's like when you find out that Carson's monologue went from right to left, and you don't realize it. Now, if you go back and watch the Carson show, you can watch his, you, you watch his eyes pan during the monologue, you know. It was kind of fun, you know, and, and, and it was great, you know, and, and Fred, Fred would hand me a note. There was so many times where I'd write a note, and put it in the bin, and Fred would hand me a note, and I'd have to say to him, it's already in there, because our minds were so alike. He would write the same exact joke. It was so great. You know? So to anyone hearing this, it's almost like if you're on Zoom and you write to someone in the chat, you were sending him notes off screen that, that someone else that's, couldn't that's, see. In, in essence... If you, if you want to send a joke or a happy birthday or happy divorce, please book me. Cameo.com slash Jackie Marley. I, I got to get something out of this. The, the oh, uh, I absolutely thing. promise you we're going to hit lots of that. All I care is Cameo.com slash Jackie Marley. I'm getting a lot of them because I'm made for this. Two dirty jokes, three dirty jokes. Take it easy. It's my parents. Please go wild. It's my boss. Please do Jewish jokes. Please do poop jokes, you know. Can you tell yeah, them what Cameo is so they understand it? What it is, is you go to Cameo.com and you go to me and you pay them and you write like, uh, this is Chris. I want to say happy birthday to Doug Goodstein. He really loves a good Jewish joke and he loves a good <laughs> fart joke. Uh, let him have it. Don't get too dirty or get as dirty as you want. And, and then I just record it on the iPhone, but the app comes right up in front of me. So I push record on the app 
and then hit send and you get it immediately. And at your leisure, you send it to your friend, like either right on his birthday or right away or whatever you want to do, you know. And then people love it. You know, they send a happy Father's Day or a happy, happy birthday to their grandfather that they know loves dirty jokes. They, it's, it's really a fun thing, you know. And you price it as you want to or do no, they price I, it for I, you? Well, I don't. I, I, it's 50 bucks. There's a lot of people charge 300. Some people charge 2000. Some, you know. $50 is not a lot of money, but it's just enough to make it worthwhile for me to sit down and, you know, I don't get all of it, but I get a, a good chunk of it. You know, I was just going to say that you were made for this. You have boxes and boxes and boxes of jokes. You could do this all day, all day, all day. And I call into the David Feldman show that my friend David Feldman does an incredibly brilliant liberal podcast and he talks to everybody and it's semi it's serious, but it's funny people being serious. And the shows are six, seven, eight hours, and they're so great. And at the end of the show, he calls me up, and I do 10 or 15 minutes of the most disgusting, horrible, funny, crazy, graphic jokes. And his audience goes berserk. And I've done 90 of those, and I'm still not running out of jokes. And he's like flabbergasted. He's like, where, the, where are these jokes coming from? You know, and that. I just, I just have them. And then somebody says something and it makes me think of five more, you know, I, they, they're just in there. They're in my, they're in my computer and they're in my loose leaves, but they're in here, you know? When it comes to marketing, cause all the things that they used to make fun of you for is what I'm teaching people or explaining that they should be doing to get their name out there. What came to you to where like the most brilliant thing how you would have Howard do the live read for your album at the time and to promote anything. How did that come to you and how did you negotiate that? What happened was when I first started on the show, I didn't get paid. But at the end of the show, we'd say, hey, go see Jackie at Governor's, call 516-922-WINE. And then the, the plug stayed. And then when I got the job, when we went to mornings, even though they were paying me, the plug stayed. That that Because I, I got paid very little. But at the end of the day, I got a plug. Now, he talks from 6 o'clock in the morning till 10, 10.30, 11, 11.15. So a lot of times my plugs, you know, the, you know, the, the, the curve, you know, the amount of people still living, living, <laughs> that's a Freudian stuff. People still listening at 11 o'clock was, was devastatingly lower. And then at some point at the end of the show, he would never shut up. So there would be a commercial backlog of like 10 minutes. And so he'd say, we'll see you, you know, uh, we'll be right back. Meanwhile, he's not going to be right back. This is going to be 12 minutes of commercials. And then when we come back, he reads my, my plugs. And at some point he said, listen, Howard, cut me a break. Before we go to that final commercial spot, do my plug before that. And he, he was always good to me. He said, sure, absolutely. Then I was always asking for more money. And people always bitched and moaned about me asking for more money. But I started out so low. They, oh, we're paying you twice what we were paying you. Yeah, but I was making $4. You know, now I'm making $8. Yeah, well, we doubled your money. They're trying to figure out. And one point, Mel says, well, if you want to get more money, you're going to have to do a one-minute joke spot every day at noon. And I'm like, you know, don't throw me in the briar patch. You know, what are you crazy? Of course, so I did nonsense at noon for a little while. Until we changed program directors and he said, why are the dirty jokes on my radio station? So that was funny. And then one year they didn't want to pay me. I forget the order of which. And they said, we're not, this is our top offer. I said, okay, then you know what? And this was the smartest move I ever made in my life. I said, I want another plug. I want to show mid plug somewhere around eight o'clock. And they agreed to it. So for the next 10 years or whatever it was, I not only got a plug at the end, but I got a plug in the heart of the show. And I would alternate. If I was working in Detroit, I would put it up at 7, because I would put the plug up. I would put the plug up at 7.15 on Monday, and I'd put it up at 8.15 on Wednesday. You know what I mean? Like, staggered. So we'd hit, a, some people only listen for 20 minutes on the way to work or whatever. So I made sure I hit the, you know, I mean, and, and that, that's, that's not rocket science, but it is if you haven't thought of it. And that filled, I could fill any club, you know, they, clubs that would normally dark on a Thursday would book me on a Thursday and I'd sell a place out. They'd give me the cover. They'd get the drinks. Everybody won. It was fantastic. 
Yeah. What do you think that would have cost to buy that time? I don't think they ever said to me, well, you know, that's millions of dollars, blah, 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 you know, because what if I said, okay, you know what? Forget the plug. Just give me the money. You know, so, so nobody ever put a dollar. No, but for, from a business standpoint, it was such a great leverage because you were working for that plug and then that plug promoted the club and then the club saw you selling out Thursdays and they're going to pay you more on the back end. And everybody that listened to the show was like, wow, I want them talking about my club. So I was fighting away the gigs. It was, you know, at one point I had five different colors, Stump the Joke Man shirts and small, medium, large, extra large, pink, blue, green, white, Heather, you know, and then in 1993, I put out a CD and then I put on, you know, I had the three albums, but then I never did another album. I did a couple videotapes in the mid eighties. And then I said, all right, it's time to start making the CDs. And uh, so I went to the beginning to, you know, cause the jokes were already on the albums, but I didn't care. So I started with the joke man. And this is what's crazy. We're working full time on the radio and killing ourselves. And I put out a CD in 1993 that was the maximum amount of time you could have on a CD spoken word was 78 minutes. And the joke man was a 78 minute joke CD. Then I had to surgically take all those jokes out of my act and replace them with different jokes. till I got to the point where I had a completely different 80 minutes of jokes, recorded them, and I made Sergeant Pecker. Then when I got done with Sergeant Pecker, I had to, this is not just working it out in the clubs and trying stuff out. I'm, I'm on stage killing and getting paid big money to do these shows. So I couldn't say, well, that one didn't work. I had to, I don't know where I had my balls, but <laughs> then I surgically removed them. And then what's really funny is, I'm working towards another one and we're selling these things to West Telemarketing. And it was incredible because they'd call up to order something and they had a thing called the upsell. And like, oh, do you also want to buy a shirt? Do you also want to buy a cassette? And, you know, somebody who was planning on spending $15 would spend 45 to, you know, the money was, you know, when you, when you, when it's working, it's working. You know, we made 100, 200 grand with that and it didn't matter because the gigs and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, West Telemarketing called us up. The little old ladies in Omaha refused to say Sergeant Pecker on the telephone. So I had to tell Howard, listen, my CD is being taken off West Telemarketing. So he announced, listen, there's only two more days you can get it. I must have sold 20,000 CDs in two days. Because, the, I mean, Pecker is a chicken's beak. David Pecker owned the, you know, it's a word. You know, but they didn't want to say Sergeant Pecker. So I named my next CD Hot Dogs and Donuts. And I figure if you can make it that into a vagina and a penis, well, that's your own problem, right? And the so cover was art so was you stuff. holding the donut and the hot dog. Hot dog. Oh, just, just classic. But the point is I did that six times, got rid of all these jokes and replaced them. It's almost five hours worth of jokes. In other words, when I was doing F. Jackie, my sixth CD, that means these are the jokes that I would have got to after standing at the bar with you for five hours. But meanwhile, they were all killers. You know, I mean, I don't have a lot going for me, but when it comes to jokes, I got that covered. I am, I am the guy when it comes to jokes. I just want to cover that because that's something I want to ask you about. For whatever reason, you left the show in 2001 and everyone's heard what interprets i don't care about that i'm curious after about six months in a year since you left the show were you turning it on from time to time every day and i want to know what hurt the most about that i obviously get the ass this a million times and people say oh jackie did this he changed the story blah 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 but then somebody will talk to me and they'll ask me why'd you leave the show in an interview and i tell them and they say well that's what you said eight years ago i said because because that's what happened. I don't lie, and I've never lied. The true story is I went to my boss and asked for a raise. He said no, so I left, which happens every day in every business, blah, blah, blah. There was, some, Of course, there's a million mitigating situations, you know. The truth of it is that after however many months, I called and said, listen, if the deal is still on the table, I will take it. 
And you'd have to be, uh, I don't know, a joke teller or a performer. I didn't miss, you know, I, I, my fame hadn't gone away yet. You know, I didn't miss the money. I didn't miss the fame. I didn't, didn't miss getting up. But to sit in a room with four funny people and laugh for five hours a day is such an unnatural thing that it's like, does a fish know it's in water? You don't realize what an incredible time you're having. But it wasn't like you leave the show and you find another group of five people to hang around with and laugh with. You go through withdrawal. And I really, really miss that. As far as listening to the show, and nobody has ever believed this ever, I have never listened to the show. I didn't listen to the show when I started. I didn't listen to the show when we were on break. I didn't listen to the show when it was best of. I didn't listen after I left. It was like, you know, if I listen and it makes me laugh, I'll, I'll miss it. But if it doesn't make me laugh, I'm like, what's going on? I'll be thinking about what I could have done in the very, this is such, so great. And, I, and this is another thing that I don't know how much of a fan of the show you are, but the people that are big fans of the show know this or they know of the incident because it was in, it was in private parts. When I first got to the show and he asked me to come in each week, I would write things down like for stump the, stump the comedians. I, I, listeners did not call in with decent jokes. They were too dirty. They were too stupid, too racist. So I would give Fred jokes and he would have jokes and he would call in from another room as Mrs. Flemstein, which is so funny because Jackie Flemstein was a, was a name that Kelly Rogers used when we were on the road in Florida. And I thought Flemstein was the funniest Jewish name I've ever heard. So when Fred started doing it, I started saying, oh, it's Mrs. Flemstein. One day Howard said, how'd she get the name Mrs. Flemstein? And I said, I named her. And Robin was like, yeah, right. You named it. So I got Kelly Rogers pissed off at me for stealing the name, and I got them not giving me the credit, okay? So we're doing this, and he used to do a thing called Mama Look a Boo Boo Day. It was a black helicopter reporter, and he used a megaphone. Hey, Robin, how are you? We're looking, we're flying over the expressway, a lot of cars, Robins. You know, Robins with S on it. It was funny. It was funny. But I would come up with this, these horrible, not really racist, but, you know, black-type commentary. I would hand it to him. And when I first handed him, he like looked at me like, like, I don't need your help. And then I'm listening. I used to listen. When I first had started on the show, I would listen. And all of a sudden, I heard some of the material I had handed him on Mama Look at Day. And the next time I came in, I said, hey, Howard, here's some, here's some more lines. And he kind of looked at me sheepishly and said, you know, thanks. You know, <laughs> he took it. So I'm listening to the show and I hear him, you know, doing Mama Look at Day and I gave him some more stuff. I was on a, a, a small stepladder fixing something in my kitchen. And I distinctly remember this because I don't fix anything. I don't know how to, you know. And me and Nancy lived in this rented house. And I was standing on this ladder and I almost fell off the ladder. Because at the time I used to work, I was killing in Philadelphia years before I ever met Howard. And I used to work at a place called the Comedy Factory Outlet. And Gary came and said, hey, Howard, this girl here wants to take off all the clothes. He says, what? He says, I don't know. He says, all right, bring her in. And the girl came in. Her name was Maria. And she's, he says, what's your name? She says, my name's Maria. I'm like, Maria? She goes, yes. And I work at the door and sometimes do comedy at the Comedy Factory Outlet in Philadelphia. And my favorite comedian is Jackie Martling. And I almost fell off the ladder because I just happened to be listening. Now, of course, nobody's ever heard that piece of tape. I know what happened because I couldn't just make that up. And she was a girl I knew. Never, I never banged her or anything. She was just a fun girl that worked at the, at the, at the door there. And she was very cool. So, but see, after that, I just, I never, ever listened. And people thought, you know, I'll tell you one thing. I was great. I was in, in Los Angeles and George Clooney's assistant was showing me around the Warner Brothers lot. And he said, come on. And I was a big fan of ER. He says, come on, you got to meet the girls. And Juliana Margulies and Gloria Rubin shared a trailer. He says, come on, you got to meet the girls. And we're walking up the steps, and I heard my laugh because the girls were listening to the best of Stern in the trailer. And I walked in and said, hey, Jackie's here. And they, they were more excited to meet me than I was to meet them. And, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that there's no price tag on, but it was just, just wonderful. Did it hurt losing them as friends? They weren't friends. They were just, you know, acquaintances for that one second, you know. Any, I didn't lose any friends by leaving the show. And any that I might have left, might have lost, weren't really friends. 
You know, I had a lot of friends that didn't even listen, didn't listen to the show. They could have cared less, you know. But some, some of them would go wild. They're like, I can't believe he got you pegged for being cheap. You know, I'd have a party and have lobsters for 150 people and come in on Monday and get called cheap. And everybody, yeah, he's cheap. You know, I'm like, well, isn't anybody doing the math? <laughs> you know, it worked. Jackie's cheap. Jackie's annoying. Jackie's a pain. Yet it all worked. You know, it made the show better. What did I care? You know, like Curly saying, Mo, you really shouldn't hit me so much. Well, that's the show, Curly, you know. I think you're a very innovative person and just hearing your history and past as far as from music to working in the jokes, you're very progressive in thinking, just the idea of merchandise. And you were doing all the things in the late 70s that people are doing now. I'm not saying that to kiss your ass in any way. I'm saying it because I don't think many people appreciate that there's a business side to show business. Well, I think they looked at it like it wasn't, it was a form of cheapening yourself. You know, which, you know, like uh, like having your name on a shirt or, or selling a mug or something like that. When, you know, meanwhile, it's a nice way to make money. It's a nice, you know, I used to have cards I put on the table, you know, sign up for my for my mailing list. And the guys thought I was an idiot. But like self-promotion is the name of the game. It just is, you know, until you get big enough that Warner Brothers takes over or Epic Records takes over. You're the you know, you're the one in the barrel, you know. So what are you doing these days? Still touring, still clubs? All my gigs are on jokeland.com. But, you know, when this first started, they'd push them back a month. They'd push them back two months. And I said, look, we're not going to book anything until this thing is passed. So I, my last gig, I think, was in February. As it stands now, I, all my gigs are on hold. I got one gig January 9th at the Algonquin Theater in Jersey. But I'm so afraid that that's going to be pushed back or canceled for the time. But I'm doing cameo.com slash Jackie Martling. I am an absolute Trump hater, but I call in once in a while to Mark Simone because we go back 40 years and he loves my jokes. And I'm on with David Feldman and I tell jokes and I actually answer every email. So if anybody wants to say hello or yell at me, jokeland at AOL.com. If you just want to email me and tell me I'm an idiot for being on AOL, J-O-K-E-L-A-N-D at AOL.com, not Jokeman, Jokeland at AOL.com. And I, and I do a lot of these things. I talk to so many people. I talked last night, I talked to these guys that have a, a punk rock site. And they were calling because they wanted to talk to me about my songs from the 70s, which are so much, you know, I gave up music, but my heart was really in it. You know, I just, I quit, you know, like, you know, Rodney Dangefield, I stole his joke. He said, yeah, in 1979, I quit music. And to give you an idea how well I was doing, I was the only one who knew I quit. <laughs> <laughs> My book is out, Joke Man, Bow to Stern. It's on Amazon. You want to talk marketing? Howard gave me a big bump for my book sales. I got a big bump in book sales. And I was like, how did that happen? He put out a book and it was for sale on Amazon. And anybody that bought his book, he never mentioned my book on his show. And if you went on Amazon to buy his book, underneath it always says, people who bought this book also bought this. And people are like, when did Jackie put out a book? They already got their mouse. They already got their credit card. It clicked. I got a huge bump in sales. People are like, well, what the hell? Even people that didn't like me, they were curious, you know? <laughs> Anyone that's hearing this, get a cameo, send it to someone, even if you're not familiar with Jackie. Look him up because he tells jokes in a fantastic way and how he remembers as many as he does. I'm going to start using your jokes, Jackie, now that you've said that you've heard them at an earlier time. And I'm going to get people to start thinking that I myself have these jokes because <laughs> you've got some ones I've never even heard before. I will send you I will send you a couple of uh, I I whittle down all the calls to David Feldman. And it's like between eight and 12 minutes of hysterical jokes, no repeats. And I got 90 of them. I'll send you a bunch of them. You'll get a kick out of them. Can I put them up as well? You can do anything you want with them. You can, if you want to take them separate and put them up as me, if you want to tell them yourself, you want to say you heard them from me, you can. If you don't want, they're, they're jokes that are in the air. But I'll tell you right now, you ain't telling them as good as me. <laughs> can you give us a couple of jokes right now? So a lady calls the doctor and she says, doc, I got diarrhea. Can I take a bath? And he says, if you got enough. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you, I'll leave you with one. Yeah. 
So a girl goes to her high school prom. The next day, she sends her mother a text. Says, Ma, the prom was great, but now we're at the beach, and I'm freaking out. I got cum in my hair. So her mother sends her back a text and says, Honey, I'm glad the prom was great. Listen, sometimes when you're blowing a guy and he wants to shoot on your face, he'll pull it out of your mouth, but they really can't control where it goes. Some might get in your hair, but just jump in the water. It'll wash right out. And she writes back, Mom, thanks for the info, but I meant to type gum. <laughs> That's the greatest joke I've ever heard. <laughs> and again, every time I've heard you tell jokes anywhere, I've never heard you tell the same joke twice. That's good. You want to hear the best marriage joke? The Love wife to. says, get out, get out, get the fuck out. As her husband's walking out the door, she says, I hope you die a slow, painful death. He says, so now you want me to stay? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. Cameo, going to find you. I'm going to order two of them right now. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I hope to speak to you again at some point. This was great. And I really enjoyed it. And thanks to Doug. And thanks to Tim Sabian, who for 30 years has told me he's my biggest fan and he can't wait to do something for me, which he hasn't yet. He's working on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, he sure is. For more info, visit getconnects.com. That's G-E-T-C-O-N-N-E-X-X.com. Or visit us on Facebook at Connects, I-N-C, or on Instagram at Connects underscore. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Don Pablo. All their coffee is roasted in small batches, providing the freshest tasting coffee imaginable. Simply put, it's a better cup of coffee. Order on Amazon or at DonPabloCoffee.com.